Hi, this is Chris Newmarker. I'm Managing Editor of Medical Design and Outsourcing, a mass device resource. Artificial intelligence already makes it easier for people to manage their email or pick movies to stream. It makes sense that medtech companies would want to package it into medical devices too. But what are the regulatory challenges around AI, and what is FDA doing about it? Uh, to help answer these questions, we have Mike Drews. Mike is a regulatory consultant based in Southern California. He's worked with both device companies and FDA. Mike, welcome back to MDO. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. So, Mike, you know, let's start by just getting the definition down. I mean, we hear terms like artificial intelligence, machine learning. I, I know that we've had the term software as a medical device for, for a while in the, in the industry. I mean, what's what is the definition? What's the, what's the difference? So, great question, Chris. And to me, the phrase artificial intelligence is really becoming overly used. My definition as a professional biomedical engineer of artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence is software that has the ability to sort of monitor itself and then learn and make changes based on how that software performs and make itself better in the future. So this is sort of the, uh, the software equivalent of Darwinian evolution, of uh, survival of the fittest changes or the fittest mutations. By that standard, Chris, a lot of what is being talked about today does not qualify as artificial intelligence. I'm doing more and more work in this area. As you can imagine, Chris, I have a number of companies coming to me with what they claim to be AI software. But when they explain this to me as a biomedical engineer, I basically say to them, where is your intelligence? So I think we have to be a little bit careful as an industry, Chris, that we we don't overly use that phrase of AI. AI software really should be software that has the ability to learn and involve, evolve and improve itself, which is, uh, in my opinion, the most important technological difference and, as we'll talk about, uh, create some interesting regulatory challenges as we move further into these, uh, into these kinds of technologies. I mean, right now, what's, what's out there? What has FDA approved? That, that, in your opinion, has an artificial intelligence pack, you know, package in? So according to FDA, they have approved a few uh, AI-based devices. However, uh, a couple of things. Right now, there's still no way to easily do a search in any of the FDA databases for artificial intelligence-based uh, technologies. I've made that suggestion. But more importantly, as we just talked about, Chris, it really comes down to how do we define AI because the devices that have been brought through the FDA thus far, and I've been involved with a few of them myself, we have purposely had to dumb down that technology. You may have heard of this concept of a locked algorithm, which we can talk about in more detail, but essentially prevents the software from doing exactly what I just described. In other words, a locked algorithm prevents the, the device from learning and changing and evolving and making itself better, purely, as we'll talk about, Chris, for regulatory reasons. Yeah, it's, that's curious because that's the whole point of the artificial intelligence is that it, it does change, it learns, it it is able to, to, to morph based on these machine learning algorithms. So that, so. That's correct. And, and to use a, a simpler non-medical device metaphor, Chris, I'm sure you're very familiar with the TV guide that pops up on your, your TV. Well, if you 
Uh, not anymore, Mike. I, I stream my movies. I don't. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I'm dating I'm, myself, Chris. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to. So I, I remember it. I remember those days. <laughs> bear, bear with me. I'm going to use this example to illustrate anyway, because I do think it, it illustrates a, an important point. If you tend to watch a particular show uh, over and over again, uh, a, a sitcom, for example, then the software might recognize that you watch that show, and in the future, five minutes before that show airs, it might uh, pop up on your screen, hey, this particular show is going to start in five minutes. Do you want to watch it? Some people would define that as AI. I do not. As a professional biomedical engineer, to me, that's nothing more than pattern recognition. AI would take it a step further. AI would be uh, would allow the software to see, okay, Chris likes to watch comedies, therefore I'm going to tell him about other similar TV shows, not the same show, but other similar TV shows that he might want to watch. And taking it a step further, Chris, the software might recognize you tend to watch comedies on certain days of the week at certain times, as opposed to, um, I don't know, the news, for example, uh, certain other days at certain other times. That's where we're really starting to get the intelligence into the software. It's not just simply pattern recognition. It's not just simply uh, noticing that you watch a show and then prompting you that that show's, same show is going to be coming on in five minutes. It's a whole level beyond that. Does that make sense, Chris? It makes a lot of sense. You know, one story that sticks out in my mind is uh, is, is ResMed, actually. I mean, I, I know that they've been... Uh, you know, touting a lot of machine learning around their their CPAP devices. So I mean, that that's that's kind of neat. Um, so I mean, you're kind of it really is like something that you're seeing more in the the industry. The companies are saying, "Hey, we're you know we're it's just not just a connected device. We're we're trying to like use certain types of machine learning to to provide insights for the health providers and the and the patients." Um, I mean, so, so I mean, it sounds like it's something that's coming. It's definitely coming. Uh, as I said, I've got more and more companies uh, that are coming to me in this area of not just software as a medical device, which has been around for a while, but specifically AI. But on a personal note, uh, Chris, it, it, it makes my blood pressure goes up, go up as a biomedical engineer when we dumb down our technologies to meet our regulatory requirements. And that is exactly what I see happening in AI when it comes to the, um, this concept of the locked algorithm. So perhaps we should dig into that a little bit further because that's going to get into some of the regulatory challenges, and I'm happy to share with you some of the solutions that I am proposing to deal with them. Yeah, I mean, I think you know a good, a good way to set the table with this is okay. What you know, what is FDA presently doing when it comes to to regulating artificial intelligence and me- medical devices? I mean, it sounds like the locked algorithm is something that. That that's a big deal for them. I mean, what overall is going on? Where are we right now? Well, the locked algorithm is at best a stopgap. It's a band-aid. It is absolutely not a long-term solution. So here is, uh, in essence, here is the situation. Forget about software or AI for a second. Let's just use a conventional mechanical medical device, uh, a catheter, as an example. So we are developing a catheter. We make a bunch of prototypes. We iterate the design. We do some testing. Eventually, we get to the point of having a catheter that seems to to look and work the way we want it, and therefore we we um, get to what we call design freeze. 
And once we get to design freeze, we stop tweaking it, we stop changing it, we do our final V&V testing, we make our submission to the FDA, uh, either as a 510K or a PMA or a de novo or whatever it is, and then we put it onto the market. But does the story end there? Absolutely not, because you know in the medical device world, Chris, much more than in the drug world, medical devices are constantly changing, they're constantly evolving. So as the company learns how that catheter is used in the real world, it might make changes, the company, I should say, might make changes to the design, to the materials, to the sterilization method, whatever it is. Then the next question becomes, does the company need to notify the FDA of that change, either in the form of a, um, a special 510K or a PMA supplement, or if they don't need to notify the FDA, they do what we call a letter to file. All of that has been done for decades, and that has all been under the the control of the of the company and, and secondarily with the FDA. Now let's come back to AI. Remember, Chris, I said a moment ago, AI has the uh, has the uh, potential to literally learn and make change itself without the company being involved, without the FDA being involved. And of course, this makes people very very nervous. This is why. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is why at the moment we've introduced this concept of locked algorithm. The locked algorithm is the software equivalent of a design freeze for any mechanical medical device or electronic medical device or in vitro diagnostic or anything else. You know, it's interesting to me, Chris, I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, how AI devices are going to have all these new challenges that we haven't faced in the medical device industry uh, in the past. You know, with all due respect to those to those folks in industry and at FDA, I strongly disagree. If you understand the regulatory logic, there's really nothing new here. So again, back to the AI by disabling the the algorithm by by locking the algorithm, we're preventing the the device from from taking advantage of its artificial intelligence. That's a stopgap measure. So one of the solutions that I've proposed is, okay, in the short term, you can disable the algorithm, you can lock the algorithm. However, still allow your software to collect that information. But unlike what true AI would allow us to do, where we can use that information to make modifications to the device, have, that, have the software send that information back to the company. The company evaluates that, is this a change that we want to make? And then they decide, is this a change that we need to notify FDA with a special 510K, or is it a change that we don't need to notify FDA and we can do a letter to file? Let the company manage that. This is a short-term solution. In the future, though, I have devices that I'm working on right now uh, in the early stages of technology where the software will say to the company, okay, here's the change that I want to make. Here's the V&V testing, if you will, that I've done to support that change. And here's my recommendation. We do either a special uh, 510K or a letter to file. In other words, eventually the technology will be able to do all those things. But nobody, myself included, is willing to put that level of trust in the technology right now. It's kind of like, Chris, the self-driving car. You know, we have self-driving cars today, and in some cases we even have self-driving airplanes. Right. But there's not a lot of people that are completely trusting of this technology because it's still new. I understand that this is going to take some time and it's going to take a while for people to build up confidence. 
But we do need to keep that long-term goal in mind because one of my fears, and I've seen this happen already, Chris, is this locked algorithm concept is really holding us back as an industry. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I mean, it reminds me of the way they like hold back the speed of NASCAR race cars. I mean, you know, they don't. Um, I mean, it's it's like it could have the ability to do so much more, and instead you're just locking it into place. But then at the same time. I could also see that, I mean, it's it's one thing for a, a car to be able to drive itself on a sunny day in Northern California. It's it's another thing for it to be able to drive itself around on icy roads in Minnesota, where I'm from, let alone having an artificial intelligence, uh, you know, tell someone's pacemaker what to do or tell somebody's... Right. You know, so, I just, so I just gave a solution the, of, of, you know, for the intermediate term, not for the, the short term. Let me give you another solution. This is an example of a device that I'm working on right now uh, that's a short-term solution because unlike a lot of folks in this industry and regrettably at the FDA, I don't want to complain. I don't want to make excuses. I certainly do not want to use regulation as an excuse to hold me back to dumb down my technology. I don't think that serves anybody. So here's what we're doing with uh, a device that I'm working on right now. We have, this is a, um, uh, a, a surgical instrument. The general indication is ablation. I don't want to um, uh, obviously disclose too many details because this is in development right now, but it's an ablation tool that's used in laparoscopic surgery. The physician, this is, this is a device that's been around for a while, and the physician, the surgeon, has the ability to adjust the level of energy that's delivered into the patient depending on how much cauterizing that the surgeon wants to do. There's a little knob on the front of the, 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 the device that, that uh, adjusts the, the energy, the current. Well, what this particular company has done is put software into the device, specifically artificial intelligence into the device, to sort of automate that um, energy uh, selection process for the surgeon. In other words, literally the device will monitor how the surgeon is using this device. It will learn when the impedance of the tissue starts to increase the surgeon makes an adjustment to the, to the uh, current. When the uh, impedance decreases, the, uh, the physician tends to make the opposite kind of adjustment. Anyway, without getting into a lot of technical detail, the, the support is monitoring and learning and making adjustments so that in the future, that surgeon will not have to do that themselves. And further, the device is being trained to recognize the differences between surgeon A versus surgeon B versus surgeon C. So the question is, right now, that is with the way that this technology is used under surgeon control, FDA has nothing to do with that because that's the practice of medicine and FDA cannot regulate that. And every regulatory textbook and every regulatory consultant will tell you that FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine, which is true, but that's only part of the story. There's an important caveat to that. When the practice of medicine is practiced by a device, in this particular case, an AI-based device, now all bets are off. So basically what, we're, what we have done, and I think this is quite frankly an ingenious regulatory strategy, it's, 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 you know, I'm biased because it's, it's, it's my strategy, <laughs> but what we have done is we have pre-validated the range of um, adjustments that the device can make. 
And this is a classic sort of a V&V sort of thinking. So again, there's nothing new about this, Chris. So we're allowing the, the, um, uh, the software to learn and to make changes based on how the surgeon is using the device, but we're only allowing the software to make changes between a predefined region, between a minimum and a maximum. In other words, what we're basically saying is as long as the software makes a change between X and Y, we've validated point X, we've validated point Y, we've validated a few points in between, therefore, end of discussion. This, I think, uh, and I hope I'm giving you enough detail without disclosing too much detail, obviously, that you can understand the, the regulatory logic that I'm using here. But to me, this is a much more reasonable solution than this archaic concept of a locked uh, algorithm. To me, that makes no sense. I mean, you basically defined a, you know, a, a range in, in which in that range there was safety and efficacy, and then, and then the AI could kind of play inside of that range, basically. Exactly correct, Chris. Exactly yeah. correct. And one of the VNV, uh, one of the validations that we've done is we've compared the adjustment that the surgeon that the surgeon would be, would make by themselves. In other words, without any um, AI, to the adjustment that the device would make that has the AI. So this is just another form of uh, of, of of validation. To use a regulatory pun, Chris, this is showing substantial equivalence between the surgeon and the device. Now, I'm not using, uh, please, you know, our regulatory friends in the audience, you know, don't get upset. Obviously, we can't show substantial equivalence to a surgeon. We have to do that to a device, but I'm using the concept. I'm using the regulatory logic of substantial equivalence here. Again, there's nothing new to me about AI if you understand the regulatory logic. It's really interesting. I, you know, I, if you could, like, I know that, you know, FDA... In, in April, uh, you know, you know, came out with a bunch of discussion points. You know, they, they seem to be moving forward with, you know, kind of trying to, you know, get to another level when it comes to trying to regulate it. I mean, I mean what exactly was that? I mean, what, what are your thoughts about it? Well, without getting into a lot of the, the weeds, a lot of the details, Chris, you know, there is a lot of uh, talking going on uh, at FDA about artificial intelligence and in industry. Um, but unfortunately, Chris, one of the things I've learned is just because two people are talking, just because uh, a company and the FDA are talking, doesn't necessarily mean they're communicating. And there's a big difference between talking and communicating. I think we, in this industry, not just in the area of AI, but in a lot of other areas as well, we need more actual communication. And specifically, it's not FDA's job to tell us how to develop medical devices, including AI-based devices. That's our job in industry. We need to figure out how to do that. We need to figure out what makes sense from a biology and an engineering perspective. You know, one of the things that differentiates my approach to this game, Chris, compared to so many others, is I do not begin with the regulation. I begin with the biology and the engineering. As a professional biomedical engineer, I want to understand the engineering, I want to understand the pathophysiology, and then we bring in the regulatory. So we should figure out, as I, I just gave a couple of suggestions as examples, we should figure out um, how best to solve these problems from a biology and engineering perspective. The ablation example that I just shared a moment ago is a perfect one. And then we take it to the FDA and we sell it to them in the form of a pre-submission meeting or something else. 
So, so kind I, of overall, what I'm hearing from you is okay. I mean, I I mean, I've seen some some big white papers, some big, you know, industry working groups that have produced you know reports. I mean, we've got this, you know, big. Um, you know, big thing with discussion points from, you know, F, you know, discussion paper request for, for feedback from FDA that came out in April. But kind of what I'm hearing from you is like, we really do need to take this to the next level. And actually, you know, the industry needs to figure out like what, here's how we should be regulating this. Here's how we should be doing this, you know, so that we can. That's exactly correct, Chris. And I'm going to be a little bit blunt here. I do not believe it's FDA's job to tell us how to do any of these things. On the contrary, it's industry's job, as I just said, to figure out what we think is the best plan to move forward, and then we take it to the FDA and sell it to them. Regrettably, as you and I both know, Chris, that doesn't always happen in the real world. It's an extension of my regulatory mantra, and that is tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. So if I'm developing a medical device, I should know, quite frankly, what the heck I'm doing, whether it's AI or something else, and I shouldn't need FDA or anybody else to tell me how to do that. I mean, I mean, I, I know that FDA, you know, they've got this, uh, you know, this uh, pre-certification pilot program, you know, for for software and medical devices, you know, that they've been piloting. Um, I mean, do you think that's going to help out? I mean, is, is that going to help the situation out or what's your experience? I think that? that's a great question, Chris. And I am a huge advocate of the pre-cert program. I love that program. As a matter of fact, I have said to FDA many times, we should expand that well beyond just software. For those of you that are in the audience who are not familiar with this program, in essence, the pre-certification program, the certification is on the device, sorry, is on the team it's not on the device. In other words, in the conventional medical device industry, a company develops a medical device, again, a piece of software, a catheter, I don't care, whatever it is, and then they take it to the FDA and get a 510K or a PMA or what have you. But this is a very different regulatory paradigm. Instead of the clearance or the approval being on the device, the clearance or approval, or in this case we call the certification, is on the company, the yeah. Yeah, on the team, company, yeah. not on the device. And when you think about it, Chris, there's a tremendous amount of precedent for this idea. Think about it this way. When a surgeon graduates medical school, they do not, get, they do not have to get permission to have to do it. They've graduated from medical school. They get their license. They now can do surgery. When an airplane, airplane pilot uh, flies an airplane, they don't have to get permission to fly from one place to another. They've already got their license. They can do it. When you drive your car from, the gro- from your house to your grocery store, you don't have to get permission. You've got your driver's license. So I love the concept of the pre-cert program. And as I've said, uh, I think we should take this well beyond just software. I think we should apply it to a lot of um, uh, medical device applications. In other words, put the burden on certifying the team. Once you're confident that the team, quite frankly, knows what the heck they're doing, then they don't need to be micromanaged by FDA or anybody else. Now, obviously, this is a little perhaps utop- utopian to some people, but I think we can go in in that direction. I mean, are it's we still- willing to risk the flip side if they, you know, are we willing to like, I mean, that sounds to me like it opens the door that if they mess something up, then, I mean, if they mess something up, then they then they lose that privilege. But are we open to, are, are we willing to open the door to that, that, you know, that perhaps they might mess something up? And uh, Well, that's a good question, Chris. And, you know, obviously this is a topic that needs a lot of discussion. Um, but I would argue that even in the current paradigm, uh, people still, to use your phrase, mess things up. 
believe me, as a biomedical engineer, I see this happen quite frequently. I'm it's trying like, to keep it G-rated, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, Chris, but I, I, I see things, you know, it's like, uh, you know, did you even go to engineering school? I mean, some of the things that, that people do. So you're exactly right. With that privilege of that certification does come the responsibility. The pre-cert program is still relatively new. Technically, it's a still a pilot program, although it's been around for a couple of years. Uh, there are about 10 or 12 pro, right. uh, companies that have been accepted into the program thus far. Very recognizable of, names. I mean, Apple, Samsung, Johnson & Johnson. Correct. Yeah. And in the interest of full disclosure, two of those are customers of mine. I help them get through. So it's, 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 a, great, uh, uh, it's a great mechanism that companies should look into. Um, and one of the reasons why it was, it was developed originally is because all medical device development, whether it's a physical device like a catheter or a heart valve, whether it's an in vitro diagnostic, or whether it's a piece of software, all medical device development is iterative. There's no question about it. The question is how fast those iterations occur. For traditional mechanical and electrical devices and for IVDs and so on, it takes time for those iterations to occur. But in the software world, as you know, Chris, for iterations, you know, a programmer can change lines of code in, you know, hours or minutes or maybe even seconds. So the question becomes, does the, uh, does the company need to go to the FDA, you know, for each and every one of those changes? Right. Well, to me, right. Chris, there's nothing, again, there's nothing new here. This is just change management. It comes back to um, the fundamental question, whether you're developing a hard valve or a piece of software, letter to file versus special 510K. So once again, not to beat a dead horse here, but I think a lot of these issues that we're talking about in the context of software devices in general or AI in particular, when you think about them, when you really understand not the regulation but the regulatory logic, there's really not a lot that's new here. Yeah, if you if you bear with me, I mean, I mean, one thing that came to my mind um, as you described all of this was, I mean, I mean, years ago I, I did an interview with uh, Mir Imran, who like helped develop one of the the first defibrillators, and I, it just blew my mind when he told me that, you know, with that first defibrillator, that FDA insisted that the uh, the computing in it had to be analog. They didn't want a digital computer inside a defibrillator back in the early '80s. So that's an interesting example, Chris, and I'm not familiar with that particular example. Thank you for sharing with me. But, yeah, uh, but I, to be honest with you, Chris, if that happened today, I would push back hard on FDA because to me, and again, I can only go based on the tiny bit of detail that you just provided, but to me, that's the FDA telling me how to design my device. In other words, you can't use digital, you have to use analog or, you know, use this material, not that material. FDA cannot do that. I mean, it's interesting because in the early 80s, they were grappling with this, this new crazy world of digital computing, and um, now, now they're grappling with what do we do with uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And um, I mean, it's, it's... But in that way, Chris, it's the same thing. You know, FDA's job is not to tell us, even though sometimes they do, not to tell us how to design our device and certainly not to tell us how to test our device. That's our job. But FDA's job is to make sure that whatever we do, whatever you know, we test and so on, whatever we say about our product in terms of our labeling, that we can support those things. In other words, the metaphor I sometimes like to use, Chris, is when FDA is doing their job, whether it's AI or anything else, their job is to be critical of everything. So here in Southern California, I'm looking out my window. It's a, it's a sunny 
day, the, it's a blue sky. Um, if we went to the FDA and said the sky is blue, FDA's job is to say, okay, prove it. That's the way this game is supposed to be played, whether you're talking about AI or anything else. There's one other thing that I, that I, I get this question a lot from companies, Chris, that I think is worth mentioning. Is, is there a difference, and this, gets, this relates to what we were just talking about, in using AI as part of your development, in, in other words, in, in pre-market as opposed to post-market? And the short answer is yes, there is a difference. If you want to use AI as part of your development process, and I have several companies I'm working with now that are doing exactly that, they say, what do we have to worry about in terms of FDA? And I say, absolutely nothing. Because it's just like if you were iterating a catheter and you decide to make the catheter a little longer, a little shorter, a little fatter, a little thinner, you decide to change the material or whatever, that's all part of the design process. It's interesting. You know, there are, you know, quality requirements. We have to document, you know, what we do. We have to make sure that our user needs translate to our design inputs and then our ultimately our design outputs. And we have to do all the, the final VNV testing. But once again, Chris, this is an example of how there's nothing new to me about this process. If you want to use AI as part of your pre-market development, that is... Uh, covered under the design controls, but that's not, other than the quality requirements, that's not under FDA's purview. When it comes to post-market, we already talked about this before. Packaging it in, in a device you yeah. approved, yeah. Exactly. That's a change management problem, and that's something that uh, obviously FDA is going to be concerned about. Yeah, so you know, it's it just a because it is a question that I get asked by companies frequently. You know, another thing too that you know we've we've reported on here at MDO is that I mean, their their device companies, including Medtronic, that are using AI to to better their manufacturing processes. I mean, that sounds like that's kind of the same boat too. Like, if it's not it's not the actual device that's involved here. This has to do with you know qualifying your manufacturing processes if you want to incorporate some kind of AI that can spot troubles or come up with insights about how you could improve your manufacturing. That's an, ex that's an excellent point, Chris, and here's why. As you know, FDA directly regulates devices, but not the processes or the machines that we use to make them. In other words, you get a 510K or a PMA on a device or on a piece of software, but you do not get a 510K on the, uh, on the, extrusion, on the extrusion machine, for example, that makes your catheter. Right, and for those people like you just mentioned who are using AI uh, to help uh, with the manufacturing process, which I think as an engineer is a wonderful idea, what I would strongly recommend is they take a look at some of the discussions going on in the area of 3D printing, because the dilemma that we face with 3D printing is exactly the same as the one that you just described. We regulate the device, that is the product that comes out of the 3D printer, but how do we regulate? Is it possible to regulate the printer itself? Some people have suggested that we create a 510K-like mechanism for a manufacturing machine like a 3D printer. I personally am not in favor of that. Uh, but that would be regulated under the, the, uh, you know, the quality and the V&V &V kind of regulations. And by the way, Chris, this is exactly the same thing that we face in the drug world. You know, the pills coming out of the, the capsule, the tableting machine, are regulated uh, via an NDA, for example. 
but the machine itself is not directly regulated. And what I mean by that, Chris, is we don't get an approval on the manufacturing machine, on the on the on the tableting machine, because all of that validated if you know FBI FDA exactly exactly. So again, um, you know, I I hate to beat a dead horse here, but I hear so many people in industry and especially at FDA talk about all the new challenges that, that that artificial intelligence poses. And I'm sorry, maybe I'm not always the brightest bulb in the tree, but if you understand the regulatory logic, there's really a, not a lot here that's new that we haven't faced for, in some cases, decades. If we're lucky, maybe the AI is smarter than us. That, that you know, well, it'll actually like things will be better. Well, you know, you mentioned that in sort of uh, you know facetiously, Chris, but I don't know if kids today read um, Isaac Asimov anymore. But he talked about that, you know, exactly the same thing in his you know Laws of Robotics, and yeah. that was. Uh, I don't know what forty years ago, something like that, maybe more. Yeah, those were those were great books. I um, I I spent a lot of time in high school reading the Foundation trilogy. So uh, yeah, it's uh it's good stuff. So but yeah, you're right. It could become, you know, maybe maybe more people in the industry need to to go back and read some Isaac Asimov novels. That would be an interesting uh, suggestion. Hey, so to finish up really quick, I mean, we, we covered a lot of stuff. I, I you know, there's uh, we, we, we brought in a lot of good things, I think. But I mean, what's the most important takeaway for somebody listening to this discussion? So I, that's a great question, Chris. So, look, I think most important is we need to obviously work with FDA to get our new and advanced technologies onto the market, ideally without having to dumb them down. And if we have to dumb them down in the short term by using an archaic concept like a locked algorithm, let's at least agree that this is a very short-term solution, that this is just a Band-Aid solution. And in the meantime, we're going to continue to work to come up with better solutions. We work out the details ourselves. I gave you in our short discussion today, Chris, two or three specific examples of devices where we're doing exactly that. And then we go to the FDA in the form of a pre-sub or something else, and we sell it to them. I think all of these problems that we're discussing, Chris, these are all very, very solvable problems. But the question is, whose job is it to solve them? Is it FDA's job to solve them, or is it our job? I will leave that as a rhetorical question, but I think uh, most people that know me know know uh, my answer to that question. Because it's kind of like a challenge to the industry. Let's let's come up with some answers, you know, before before exactly. someone else does. <laughs> before somebody else does. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> well, Mike, it's it's been uh, good as always. So you know, thanks so much. I really appreciate having you on here to to discuss this this really interesting topic. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. And uh, if there's anything further I can do to help either you or any of the folks in the audience, feel free to contact me. This is Chris Newmarker at Medical Design and Outsourcing. Thanks again for listening.